1: This podcast explores graphic and disturbing stories and includes some strong language. It therefore may not be suitable for our young listeners or other folks who may find it disturbing. Hello and welcome to True Crime Daily, the podcast covering high profile and under the radar cases from across the country every week. I'm your host, Anna Garcia. Our cases this week, a former elder at a Southern California megachurch has been charged with murdering her 11-year-old daughter, whom she adopted after fostering the girl. The adoptive mother's parents have also been charged in connection with the death of 11-year-old Arabella. And when the adoptive father, a Border Patrol agent, found out that he was under investigation as well, he killed himself in front of the police who came to question him. But first... A model featured on the pages of Playboy and Maxim magazines, accustomed to glossy photo shoots, has only one camera to look into, the one that takes your picture as you begin your prison sentence. Kelsey Turner, who is accused of killing her wealthy sugar daddy, has taken a plea deal and will avoid a trial, a trial in which she would have been hard-pressed to explain why there was a dead man in the trunk of her Mercedes. We're recording this on Wednesday, November 16th of 2022. Our guest today is Danny Smith, a former homicide detective with the LA County Sheriff's Department and the author of the successful Dicky Floyd Detective series. We are so happy to see you back here, Danny. How are you?
2: Thank you, Anna. Uh, I'm doing good. Uh, great to be back. Thank you.
1: Excellent. It's you know there are so many of our guests on this program are people that I have met on crime scenes, and you're one of them. So um, I know it's a weird way to meet people, but when you do a crime podcast, it's actually an excellent way to find some of the best experts in the world of crime. So, Danny, God bless me the day that I met you.
2: Oh, thank you, Anna. I appreciate it.
1: Absolutely. Okay, so our first case involves two states. California and Nevada, where a former Playboy model has accepted a plea deal in the murder of her much older sugar daddy. Now, as part of this deal, she doesn't technically admit guilt, but she concedes that there was enough evidence to convict her. It's called an Alfred plea. It's, it's a really nuanced thing, I think, for people to try and understand, Danny. You know, at the end of the day, she's going to be sentenced on second-degree murder, but this whole idea that you don't admit guilt, yet it's a guilty plea, is, I think, what's hard for all of us to figure out. Can you help us through that while we get into the details of it?
2: Well, you know, it's, it's kind of like the uh, no contest, you know, if you get a, a traffic violation, you can plead guilty, not guilty, or no contest. And I mean, it's essentially the same thing. And for whatever reason, she seems to be more comfortable or her attorney seems to be more comfortable with her uh, taking this Alfred plead. And I, and I honestly don't really understand the reason or the strategy behind it, but that's um, that's apparently what she's chosen to do.
1: But at the end of the day, I mean, she's going to prison and it is essentially, right, a, a form of an admission of guilt
2: yeah she obviously when she gets out of prison what she will do she struck a deal so she's not she's not going to be in prison the rest of her life and perhaps she's just thinking that that for her career that it would be better to not have pled guilty to the crime and yet she didn't contest uh the uh, punishment they can that she accepted so i don't know i mean it's 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 a little bit odd maybe it, it doesn't really make sense but it also doesn't really have any relevance to uh to her level of guilt it's just a it's a it's a legal maneuver
1: Okay. Well, let's get into it because, you know, lots of people have been asking about that. And I'm just like, I don't know what to tell you. It's a nuanced thing, but ultimately yeah. she's going to prison and she has admitted to the evidence against her. So we're talking about 29-year-old Kelsey Turner, who was accused of killing the man who bankrolled her lifestyle for a few years, 71-year-old Thomas Burchard, a prominent and wealthy child psychiatrist from Salinas. That's in California's Central Valley. Um, Thomas's body was found stuffed in the trunk of Kelsey's car, which was abandoned near Lake Mead, Nevada, not far from Las Vegas. So for those of you who are listening and cannot see the photos of the two people involved here, we're, we're putting up Kelsey's photo and Thomas's. Well, Kelsey is what you would expect. Very beautiful blonde who you would expect would be, you know, in Playboy magazine and Maxim. And then Thomas, Thomas looks like somebody's grandfather with a long white beard, He's 71 years old. And I honestly, Danny, if I were in a shopping mall and I saw these two together, I'd say, oh, isn't that nice? She's shopping with her grandpa. I mean, come on, I'm just being, because the reason all of this is important is the reason the two of them were together, how they found each other, and and what the parameters of this relationship were, the financial contract, if you will, the unwritten financial contract, and then what happened when he didn't want to support her anymore, right? That all goes to motive.
2: Sure. And, you know, to your point of you'd think that she was with her grandfather, well, unless they were holding hands or he had his arm around her, and then you'd say, I bet that guy's really rich, which actually is the case in this matter. You know, that, that's the relationship.
1: Yeah, exactly. You know, and it's all about personal choices. I am not judging here. I'm just simply saying that these are parts of um, the relationship. So before we get into the details of the murder itself, I want to talk about the relationship a little bit more, how they met and what was going on. So Kelsey and Thomas reportedly met online. Friends of Dr. Burchard have told several media organizations that he enjoyed having sex with younger women. Um, He would often meet them online. Um, He also had a steady, age-appropriate girlfriend slash companion who has been instrumental in telling the police and filling the police in on details of the relationship between Thomas and Kelsey. So my guess is she fully knew his lifestyle, you know? Um, Again, this is as it's been described by his friends. So uh, the two had known each other for about two years. Kelsey posed for Playboy in May of 2017. She told the magazine that she would describe herself as impulsive and that most men that she found through the world of modeling were losers. Okay. Uh, Police say, here's when it gets interesting. Police say that Thomas paid Kelsey's rent. She lived in a condo with her mother and children and that the rent was $3,200 a month, it was located in Salinas, which is where Dr. Burchard lives. So apparently, the companion girlfriend of Thomas told authorities and multiple news agencies that he had given Kelsey $300,000 over the course of two years. So, Danny, as an investigator, when you find out that he then stopped paying the rent and stopped bankrolling, her life. How does this fit into this?
2: Yeah, well, sure, there, your motive is is the you know the being cut off financially and apparently she moves to Las Vegas and she's there with her boyfriend and and some other friend. and they're they're still living on money that he's providing. and when it's cut off, you know now there's some anger and uh, my understanding is he actually went to Las Vegas to, to deal with something going on with this he told his his appropriate girlfriend that you know he had to go to vegas and deal with an issue
1: which is very important because she expressed that she had some reservations about it um he said he'd be right back and because of her knowledge of his trip and she knew which flights he was taking that's how she was able to then call the authorities and say look i need you to do a welfare check the way it's been described is that Kelsey had reached out to Thomas and said that um, her new boyfriend was allegedly abusive. She had filed some domestic violence complaints, and she also said that she was broke. So she told Thomas, basically, I'm in a really bad way. I'm in a dangerous situation, and I don't have money. And so the What we understand is that Thomas flew to Vegas to see what he could do and how he could help. Um, And that's when that's when things got very, very bad. And there was an argument. And in this argument, and we're going to get into the details of um, who who said what about what happened. um, He ultimately got assaulted, hit in the head with a baseball bat. And died. That is the short version. So let's go back to March 2nd. So that's the day that we know, March 2nd of 2019, that we know that Thomas is in Las Vegas. He tells his girlfriend, Judy, um, you know, taking care of a few things. He never boarded his flight on March 4th. And Judy, the girlfriend, was waiting for him at the airport. So then here's what I find interesting, Danny. The police did numerous welfare checks. Uh, they said that they tried to contact Kelsey and try and find Dr. Bouchard on March 3rd, 4th, and 5th and were unable to locate him. So what happens in a situation like that when you knock on the door and nobody's there, but it's a welfare check? You really don't have cause to go in, right?
2: No, you don't. You'd have to have more information that, that caused you to believe that you know someone was in danger, someone was was injured, hurt dead um and i would imagine that in las vegas there's probably a lot of welfare check calls that that come in um and uh and the police are going to basically go knock on the door and if there's no response that's they're going to you know clear the call they might talk to a neighbor or two and no i don't i haven't seen him don't know what's going on haven't heard anything but that's that's pretty much all they can do uh until there's there's something that's more uh some some type of detail that makes the situation uh, more urgent and and then yeah. they could you know if they thought someone was hurt inside then then they could make entry if they you know if they believed that um but in in this case it doesn't sound like they had enough to go on
1: mhm and the the reason that Kelsey was in Vegas was you know I think for a while there, her career seemed to be doing well, Playboy Maxim, but things never really materialized. Like the career never went anywhere from that. And so between financially being strapped because Sugar Daddy's not paying your bills, you go to Vegas and you know there I guess there are lots of things that you can that a young lady who's attractive can do in Vegas. But still, I mean that gets tougher you know when when you're running um you know in in that area, it gets a lot harder for people.
2: and you know clearly, she's hooked up with a a guy that's a, a pretty bad guy you know there's There's reports of domestic violence, and then ultimately you know he's he's the one that that kills the doctor, so I mean, you know she's she's clearly running with the wrong crowd, and who knows there's you know likely drugs involved and everything else at this point, I would imagine.
1: Yeah, it's a mess. It's really sad, actually. Really sad. On March 7th, police find Kelsey's abandoned Mercedes, which was never reported stolen. You know, um, as I said at the top of the podcast, you're going to be hard pressed to explain why there's a dead man in your trunk and you never reported the car stolen. Not that that would be the best cover, but it sure would help.
2: Well, and actually, uh, Anna, it wasn't even registered to her. So it Perhaps she thought that since she had never bothered to register it, that there would be no way of of tracing it back to her, which, of course, isn't, you know, isn't very smart. But she bought it. I think she bought it uh, online from someone in San Francisco, as I recall. Mm -hmm. So, you know, maybe she just thought, well, they'll never connect it to me because I never put it my name. You know, I I don't know. It obviously wasn't very bright. And that's exactly how they, you know, put it, put it back
0: to her.
1: Yeah, and and they were already, uh, and Danny, they were already looking for her based on the companion girlfriend's uh, comments and concerns about Thomas's welfare. An autopsy was done the following day. It revealed the cause of death was blunt force trauma to the head, ruled a homicide clearly. And based on the testimony of Kelsey's roommates, he was killed with a baseball bat. A search warrant was conducted on Kelsey's home a day after finding Thomas dead. Detectives found a bedroom door that had been ripped from its hinges. It was split in two pieces. There appeared to be blood on both sides of the door. There there was blood in the garage, we're told. The place smelled of bleach. In fact, one of the roommates testified that they called a cleaning crew to come in, clean the place, and that even the cleaning crew ultimately later told police, it's like, yeah, it did look like there was blood there. And the explanation of the roommates or whomever called the the cleaning company said, "Oh yeah, we had a big party, big blowout last night." I guess it's Vegas, so things happen.
2: Yeah, you know, uh, your your audience find this interesting. There's actually crime scene cleanup specialties. The people that that's all they do for a living is they clean up crime scenes, and and every uh, homicide bureau has their phone number. In fact, usually they hand out magnets and, and things of that nature, so they're all over any front desk. And and when a crime scene is finished being processed then usually i'll make the call hey, send the crime scene cleanup people out because your normal cleaning person isn't going to be able to to clean a crime scene to the extent that these these people with you know that specialize in doing so um can can do it because it's it's more difficult than you think
1: handy tips
2: yeah Very handy
1: yeah. thank you danny yeah <laughs> Insight into the real world of crime, how it really does happen. Police say that they found additional fingerprints in the car belonging to not only Kelsey, but that makes sense because she was driving the car, Kelsey's roommate, Diana Pena, and Kelsey's boyfriend, John Kennison. Now, according to The Californian, the three suspects spent time at a Las Vegas hotel where they filled a trash bag with shredded bank accounts, records, and passwords belonging to Thomas. Now, I think when we were talking about financial motivation, I mean, did they actually think that they could kill him and then get the money out of his bank accounts before anybody found them?
2: You know, I—that's the interesting thing about this. It, the way I read, um, and of course, you know, we have limited information, just what the media is telling us. But, but when I was reading into it, I didn't feel like this was a premeditated murder that—that that they asked him there so that they could kill him and and you know gain access to his finances. I, I didn't I didn't feel that way at all. I felt like it was more spontaneous when he uh, did not do what, what they were hoping he would do, and then there were some you know. Some other drama that I'm sure you're going to get into about the text messages and so forth. But uh, it seems to me that 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 part of it that you're you're describing now is almost an afterthought of, well, he's dead. So, you know, we need the money. How do we access the money? Uh, Is there a way that we can get into his accounts, things of that nature? I I don't think that 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 part was premeditated. Personally, I don't.
1: Yeah, I I agree with you. I think it's just, it was a bad situation. Thomas probably should not have inserted himself into because (laughs) there was a, well, you know, I think, well, you know, you can say this, you can be incredibly intelligent, very well educated, obviously experienced, but if you're 71 and you're going to be finding young girls online and you may or may not somehow financially pay support, exchange, whatever you want to consider this, it can be risky.
2: Sure. I mean, it's, it's risky no matter what. I mean... When rich old men get involved with, you know, young models, there's only one reason that model or or any attractive woman, just any young woman, period, you know, she's there for a reason. So even if it doesn't end this way, I mean, it, you know, how many cases have, have we known about where the woman helps him, you know, find his end of life sooner than he might have already, you know, naturally done? So, you know, no good can ever end, you know, I mean, these things don't end well, ever.
1: No, they they rarely do. They rarely do. So you are talking about what caused the blowout, the text messages. This is actually fascinating. Very fascinating. So according to the testimony of Diana Pena, the roommate, one of the roommates, she said that, um, and they would have been in the car at this point, and, you know, whether they're in the car, or in the house, it kind of moves from the car to the house, back to the car. But essentially... Kelsey sees, figures out, discovers, on Thomas's cell phone, she finds text message exchanges between Dr. Thomas and Kelsey's mother. Correct. And and they're not just, hey, how are you kind of things. Uh, according to Diana Pena, there were photographs of a sexual nature and... Kelsey blew up. She blew up. And so she threatened, this is the testimony, Kelsey threatened Thomas to reveal his true self to the hospital where he worked, you know, and to ruin his reputation and career. He apparently got mad. Um, Now he's in the house. He slams the door closed. I guess that's when John Kennison... Burst in, knock down the door, they get into an altercation, and the doctor, Thomas, is now beat up and bloody, but still alive. And he says, I need medical care. So they say, Okay, we'll we'll get you medical care. And they make their way toward the car. And that's apparently, or in the garage is apparently where he meets his death. Because the roommate testifies that Kelsey says to the boyfriend, knock him out, finish this off. And then the next thing you know, they're cleaning the place and the car is abandoned. What do you make of that version of events? Yes,
2: yeah, so I think that uh, it, it did actually begin in the car. And my understanding is that Kelsey was using um, Thomas's phone for the navigation system or, or some other reason. And that's why she had the phone. But while she's there, she snoops. And, um, and that's when she finds this, this other, you know, these other messages and, and this stuff with her mother. And so, yeah, they, they begin arguing and fighting and and they go into the home and it's an interior door that, that Thomas ends up, you know, basically I, I'm done with this and he goes into a room and slams the door and, um, and the boyfriend kicks the door open and, and, breaks the door and and that's that's when the the first uh assault happens and he's armed with a baseball bat so he apparently hits it's thomas in the head the the witness said that she doesn't see him actually being hit in the head but she sees the boyfriend you know raise the bat after kicking the door and and you know she knows that thomas is right there where where he's swinging the bat so they they they're going to take him and at least they say they're going to take him to the hospital. That he needs medical attention. And, and I guess they, you know, they start to do that. They get out to the car or whatever. And then someone decides, I think it was Kelsey that, that we need to clean up the house first thinking, you know, if, if he reports what happens, they're going to send the police. So, so she said, tells the boyfriend, yeah, knock him out. And my understanding is she even went as far as to kind of berate him a little bit. Like, you know, I've seen guys knock people out. What, you know, what's your, I mean, why is this guy still even, you know, (laughs) among us? And, And she taunted him to the point where he went out there and killed him. He's like, okay, well, you know, I mean, if, if, if I'm less of a man for, you know, not finishing the job, I'll go finish the job. And that's what he does.
1: Wow. What a screwed up group of people. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I, I I don't know. I would use stronger language, but i I just God, what a horrible situation to to be in and, and you know they end up dumping the car, they end up cleaning the place, but none of that really seemed to matter because, like I said, police were able to find fingerprints, DNA, blood, all of this. So Kelsey gets arrested on March 21st of 2019 in Stockton, California. But this is a Nevada case, but her extradition is paused because she's pregnant. So they have to take care of her delivering. And then when she's well enough, get her to Nevada. So Diana Pena surrendered to police on April 13th, and John Kennison was arrested April 17th. Diana Pena agreed to plead to accessory to murder, and she got a special deal with prosecutors because she agreed to testify against both of them. And so it's really been Diana Pena's version of events that authorities have relied on, and that supported by the forensic evidence. So, right. um John Kennison pleaded guilty to second-degree murder with a deadly weapon and conspiracy to commit murder. He was sentenced to 45 years in prison in July of this year. Now, here's a clip of Kennison ap- apologizing to the court and to the doctor's family and friends. This is a clip from Court TV
0: to everybody that was involved. And I'm sorry for everything that, I, all the pain I caused and everything that they've had to go through the entire time. And I hope after today they, they'll get the club that they deserve or between all parties and everybody has a better understanding. Just want everybody to be able to somewhat move on and get past this in some way.
1: So Danny, he makes a statement, which, look, I realize an apology is very little at the end of the day. However, we have seen so many murder defendants sit in court and be so disrespectful to not stand, to not look, to not acknowledge, to not apologize. At least in this case, you know, he showed respect. I'm not going to even say human decency because a man is dead, but. What what do you do you, what do you make of that?
2: Well, you know, I mean, it's it, I mean, it's nicely he was decent, you know, in the hearing, and you're right, you know, I mean, so many are not, but you know, I, I would have to know more about his background. I mean, you know, this could be something that that he got wrapped up into because of you know this this hot girl that is now his girlfriend, and and he's going down this this. Crazy road and and doing things that he might not have otherwise ever done. You know, the the act of violence uh, initially was was you know pretty horrendous, but I, I don't know necessarily they intended to kill the guy until he was taunted into doing so. So you know, I I don't know. I mean, I guess when you're facing forty five years in prison um, and you've you've been in jail for quite a while before that day comes, before you're standing there uh, accepting your sentence. had a lot of time to reflect on the mistakes you've made and and you know perhaps he truly is sorry and that's great you know he still gets to do his time and uh and that's appropriate also
1: on november 9th kelsey turner pleaded guilty to second degree murder through that alfred plea that we described she's scheduled to be sentenced january 10th of 2023 She's facing 10 to 25 years in prison, and Diana Pena, who's been cooperating, is also awaiting sentencing. So it does look like, just even based on the parameters of sentencing, that Kelsey will get a lighter sentence. But then based on the testimony and how it appears that this murder went down, since she's not the one who physically struck the doctor and cause the, the, you know, that murderous blow? Is that why her sentence appears to be that it will be shorter than John Kennison's?
2: Sure. And what happens in something like this is the, the prosecutors are going to evaluate whether or not that they could prove that, you know, her encouraging him to do more, uh, would result in a conviction. And, and that's a pretty, um, that's the odds of that aren't real great. You know, you're putting in front of a jury and, and he she doesn't there's there's no evidence, no testimony that I'm aware of where she actually says, go out there in the garage and kill him. So, you know, yeah, she taunts him, says, I've seen, you know, real men knock people out. And, and you know, and that clearly is enough to spur it. But is it enough to convict her of murder to, to say that she wanted, you know, Thomas dead and that she encouraged him to go. Kill Thomas. And I don't think so. And the prosecution is going to look at that and say it's a pretty weak case. So if she'll plead guilty, you know, we've got her uh, to this degree. If she'll plead guilty or take her Alfred plead, then we can at least put her in prison and, and punish her for, for what has happened.
1: Our next case is out of San Diego, where a mega church leader has been arrested for her daughter's murder. 11-year-old Arabella McCormick died in the hospital in August of this year after being severely abused. Arabella and her two sisters were initially fostered before being adopted by Brian and Leticia McCormick. It is alleged that the girls endured years of abuse prior to the death of Arabella. (sighs) It feels like there's no end to these cases of children being abused, children who think that they're going to finally have a proper home, children who are placed in these homes through foster care and then adopted. This is with the supervision and the checks by government officials, by child welfare officials, by social workers, and yet still these children die and the fact that the system is so broken undoes me, Danny.
2: Yeah, I can't even. I don't even know where to begin on something like this because, um, you know, it's so tragic. Any time, the innocent among us are the victims, uh, that that puts a whole different level of disgust in in the case because you know these these children you know that they were put into this family to be cared for they were taken out of one bad environment and and placed into an environment that was supposed to be safe and sane and it wasn't and then the as you mentioned and then the ball is dropped from from these people that are supposed to be looking in on this you know where are the where are the social workers or the the uh, people that you know from the adoption agency or whoever that's supposed to make occasional checks and and make sure that these kids are being taken care of so, um, you know, it, I, I've handled a lot of child murders, and and I'll tell you, it's just the, these cases put me in a in a pretty bad frame of mind, to be honest with you.
1: I know that to be true, Danny, because I met you on a case involving the murder of a child, a little girl. So I yes. know you have investigated and prosecuted to the point of... When I say prosecute, I mean participate in gathering the evidence to make the case against the killers. And it is horrific. I mean, it is absolutely horrific. It is the worst ever. So here are the details of the adoption, the details of the murder. So the adoptive mother, Leticia McCormick, who is 49 years old, and her parents, Arabella's adoptive grandparents, Adela Tom, who's seventy, and seventy-five-year-old Stanley Tom, have all been charged in connection with the child's death. Meanwhile, Arabella's adoptive father, Brian McCormick, died by suicide after investigators approached him following the death of Arabella, and this happened in his in his truck. What does that tell you, Danny? Yeah,
2: I was well. I wasn't. A- surprised Uh, you know the the, it's not the only time that that something like this has happened especially with with people who expect it for a long period of time in other words they're living with this guilt anyway and even though the the death um hadn't occurred a long time before you know the abuse had been going on for years so five years as i recall five and a half years so so he, he knew he was living with this guilt um i don't know you know to what degree he was um you know who who in the family was more culpable and in fact even their parents were involved in this thing but, but the point is uh you know i've seen i've seen more than a few cases especially like, again with the cases that you know happened years before and the person's living with guilt when the cops start closing in uh the person decides i'm not going to prison and they kill they kill themselves and and this guy was a border patrol agent so he's armed uh, he would have a, a gun with him 24-7, and and my my sense of it is that when he saw the cops coming, he knew what his future looked like, and, um, and he just said, well, I'm not going to go to prison.
1: Here's the background on the family and how they ended up with Arabella and her sisters. Brian and Leticia McCormick began fostering Arabella and her two sisters, age 6 and 7, in 2017. According to Arabella's biological family, the McCormicks adopted the girls around two years after the foster process, and that the adoptions were finalized in 2019. Brian McCormick, as you said, was a Border Patrol agent. He had been one for 19 years. Leticia McCormick was a church elder and volunteer at the Rock Church in San Diego, which is a mega church founded and is led by former NFL player Miles McPherson. The church has released a statement clarifying that Leticia was not a paid staff member or pastor. However, her profile was included on the church's website, according to reports, and her profile has since been taken down. So she wasn't paid, but clearly... She was someone who had some influence and was officially associated with the church. Or why would her name be mentioned on the website? You know, you don't put everybody on the website.
2: Well, she is actually an ordained uh, elder of the church.
1: Correct. Correct. And so, you know, and I by no means am I putting any... um, any blame or anything on the church i you know i understand why the church wants to be absolutely clear as to who this person is and in fact the head of the church miles mcpherson came out with a statement this week basically saying that not only does the church feel horrible about what happened because that is the kind of environment that generally offers help to those who are lost those who are troubled those who are struggling and, you know, he kind of said the same things that we've been saying. There were so many checks in the system, meaning how many house visits and interviews had this family gone through, one to become a foster, two to adopt the girls, and then any follow-ups that would have happened. Every, every possible check failed Arabella, failed Arabella. It's just yeah. so, so upsetting.
2: Yeah, and they had taken her out of school to homeschool her, which is, you know, probably because, you know, they didn't want her uh, to be at school where she could report anything. And, and and you know, I don't have any of the details as to what the abuse was, uh, other than that she is malnourished to the to the point of you know being fatal. But um, but you do have to say, well, did they take the kids to church? And you know, in hindsight. People must ask, well, if they didn't, why didn't any of us ever wonder about that? You know, if they're that involved in the church and and they're not taking these children to church, why not? And if they were taking to the children <laughs> taking the children to church, how was how was um, this not discovered? How how did nobody notice what was going on with these kids?
1: That is such a great observation, Danny. I, it never even occurred to me that that would be part of it. That's fascinating. Yes, because they homeschooled the kids immediately, so they wouldn't have that access. And then would, if, if they were being starved as they were, according to authorities, then would you ever risk taking these children to church? Very interesting. Very interesting. Now, according to Arabella's birth mother, Toriana Flory she lost custody of the children after a domestic violence dispute with the girl's father. And she also admitted to the San Diego Tribune that she had suffered from bipolar disorder. So clearly the biological mother was suffering and needed help and needed a safe place for these kids. I, I, I am horrified by... The fact, even though we are given very few details as to what the abuse was, the fact that the children were so malnourished, I mean, that means they were being starved to death. And that's very obvious. I had a case last week on the podcast about a little boy with autism whose father, who was a New York City police officer, has just been convicted of killing him, starved this little boy and his brother and that when but they did go to school and when they did go to school, they were starving and going through trash bins looking for something to eat. And that the little boy had actually lost something like 11 pounds in less than a year when, you know, children are supposed to gain weight, not lose weight as they grow.
2: Right. Yeah, I don't I don't know. It it, it makes no sense to me. And And of course, you know, any any reasonable person, I mean, you and I and everyone else listening to this show, I'm sure. You have to ask why. Why would they do this to children? It doesn't make any sense at all. And it, it it's just so repulsive.
1: And if that's how you feel about children, why, why adopt them? Why go through the process of trying to get them? And no doubt they would have presented great. Oh, she's, you know, uh, involved in a very respected church and he's a border patrol agent and there are grandparents, you know, as part of this. That would present very well. They would look like the kind of family you would want children.
2: And maybe that's the reason they adopted the children for that, for that, you know, presentation.
1: Oh, my goodness. On August 30th, just before 2 a.m., officers responded to a 911 call of a child in distress at the McCormick home. Arabella was rushed to the hospital where she died. Detectives, of course, suspected child abuse. The San Diego County Sheriff's Office said that Arabella suffered from, quote, severe levels, severe levels of malnourishment. Honestly, that is just like trying to make it sound better than they starved her to death. Because that's exactly what it is.
2: Yeah, and I'd love to know uh, the nature of that 9/11 call. Who made that call, and what was said? That's that's the thing. I, that's the part I'm intrigued by. But uh, I couldn't find any information about it, Anna.
1: Well, because the trial, you know, every jurisdiction, Danny is fascinating. Some police agencies release release a ton of information. Some sure. release some. And then there's like the Delphi case where the court records are sealed. So it's a spectrum. And since they've been charged and we still haven't even, you know, gotten to the preliminary and 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 any of the evidence being shared, we really don't know. And I have a feeling we're going to know a lot more about this case. I think you're right because we have not heard that 911 call. So the, the sheriff's department also said that her body had a lot of bruising And the cause of death was ruled child abuse and neglect. Now, hours after Arabella's death, um, authorities, that's when they went to contact her adoptive father. Brian, the Border Patrol agent. So it wasn't too long, right? right? It's not like it was a huge gap. The other thing is that the two girls, her sisters, they were also taken to the hospital. And apparently they had to spend several days at the hospital because of the condition they were in. So it was pretty clear to authorities that some very horrible things were going on in this home. Now, what we don't know and has not been revealed at all is What could possibly be the reason, the motivation for this alleged abuse? You know what, Danny? I don't care what you tell me. Because there's never going to be an answer that's ever going to make any sense to me. And I know it's very possible that everybody else may have been abused in their world as, as, you know, possibly. I'm sorry. But that doesn't make it okay for you to turn around and do that to another child. There is no answer. There will never be a motive that you can give me that will ever
2: be acceptable no argument yeah
1: so last week on november 7th authorities arrested leticia mccormick along with her mother and father Letitia and her father stanley they're being charged with one count of first-degree murder three counts of torture and three counts of willful cruelty to a child the grandmother right Arabella's grandmother, adoptive grandmother, or Leticia's mother, Adela Tom, is charged with three counts of torture and willful cruelty to a child. So clearly there's some information there as to why two are charged with murder and one is not. Could be very interesting how this all goes down. Leticia and her parents have all pleaded not guilty to the charges. And Arabella's sisters, after recuperating, have been placed in the care of a foster family. Here we go again.
2: That's the sad part. You know these kids, and, and there's so many of them in our in our world, in our society, that they just never have a chance. They they don't. They're not raised by anyone. They just grow up and, and in various you know varying uh, levels of of poor placements quite frankly you know i mean there's there's great fosters out there and there's there's people who really care but it just seems that so many kids once they're in the system um that they're just so vulnerable and and there's so often times these these uh placements that are just terrible and, and and it's not helpful to the children
1: that's the saddest thing i've heard children not raised by anyone
2: yeah Yeah, they just grow up and they, or they don't, you know?
1: Oh, gosh, that's so sad. So sad. Anyway, here is a statement from The Rock Church, because they, of course, said that they have severed their official relationship with Leticia. And this is a statement that they released, quote, We continue to grieve for Arabella and her sisters. We are so sorry that their family and friends are experiencing this unimaginable loss and pain. Yes. It is time for our comment section. These are the crime stories you all are talking about on social media. Here's our producer,
0: Will Updike, with what y'all are talking about. Hey, Hey, Will. uh, Hey, how's it going, Danny?
2: Hey, Will. Good, good. Good to see you again.
0: All right, so we have an interesting case this week of an airline passenger who really tried to wing it with a concealed carry. Now, this case comes out of the Fort Lauderdale area there in Florida, where TSA officers at the airport reportedly found a handgun stuffed inside of a raw chicken which was placed in a traveler's luggage. So this story actually comes from the TSA's official Instagram page, which is really great. They make a bunch of jokes and like take, take pictures of insane things that they find in people's luggage. Uh, But this happened at the Fort Lauderdale international airport. And I'll just describe the picture of, of what they, they showed on their Instagram account for our audio listeners. Very clearly a raw chicken, Uh, inside of it, there's a gun that it's a handgun, a Glock, I believe, that's been wrapped in like brown. It's it appears like it's brown paper or something that kind of looks almost like the giblet bag, I guess, that you would pull out of a a chicken. But it's very clearly a gun. Oh, Um, it's it's
1: phallic looking. Let me just say, (laughs) when I saw that on our website and on our YouTube page, I, I was like, what the heck is this? I'm like, is that like Honestly, it looks like a penis. This thing coming out of the chicken. <laughs>
0: I'm yeah, just gonna very, say it, people. <laughs> yeah, very, uh, a very, very questionable look, but. So it is kind of important to note that both of these items can technically be taken on a flight legally. Uh, However, this particular combination of the two is not permitted. Now, on the TSA website, they actually note that meat, seafood, and other non-liquid food items are permitted in both carry-on and checked bags. Seems simple enough. And, of course, unloaded firearms are allowed in a locked, hard-sided container, and they are only allowed to be transported as checked baggage now we're not fully sure of the motivation behind this if it was a smuggle operation or or what exactly was going on so the name of the traveler who tried to smuggle this gun through security hasn't been released and we still don't know if there have been any charges filed but uh people were really interested in this one alaska mom said i'm surprised the chicken was able to swallow it whole oh I love, yeah, yeah. Um, Nicole M. said, answering the age-old question, what came first, the chicken or the Glock? <laughs> Ryan C. said, Somebody, someone was serious about their stuffing. which I, I'm, I'm loving this. Indy said, glock a doodle do." Oh, that's a really good one. <laughs> but uh, I got to hand it to the TSA here. If you, if you look at this Instagram post, well, actually, I'll link it into, in the description of the video, uh, they their entire post is just filled with pl- with puns. I don't know you know, what if they got writers going on over there, but it was really good. Uh, the TSA uh, on their official page said the plot chickens as we barrel our way closer to Thanksgiving. For us, oh, it's God. a time to be thankful that our officers are always working around the clock to keep you safe.
1: Around, around the, the, the clock. Glock a doodle do around the clock. <laughs>
0: So really, really good, and yeah, it, just, just safe travels to everybody if you are traveling for Thanksgiving. Uh, felt like this was a great story, uh, and we will still have an episode for you next week. So you know, if you're it, if you're looking for something to listen to or watch after you've you've filled up on Thanksgiving, or maybe just need to get away uh, from your relatives, we will be here. But uh, that's going to do it for this week's comment session. Thank you so much, Danny. Great to see you, Anna. I'll see you next week. Absolutely.
2: Happy holidays, Will.
0: That is just Oh, my gosh.
2: That,
1: That honestly is one of my favorites, I think. When you look at the picture, for those of you listening, I'm telling you, it just like, it really doesn't make any sense. And I'm sorry. I don't think it just was accidentally stuffed in the chicken. So, I mean, there are lots of ways of saying, oh, I forgot to do this. I forgot to do that. But a gun in a chicken, I mean... We have to be careful about salmonella, people, (laughs) chickens and turkeys.
2: (laughs) Yeah, some of this stuff you can't make up. But I'll tell you this, Anna, I never in my life imagined. uh, I don't think I would have ever thought to follow TSA, but I'm going to now. I'm going to find their account on Instagram and follow them. It sounds like it's a pretty interesting place to be.
1: Yes. And I love that they have a sense of humor. And my guess is they yeah. have to have a sense of humor because the stuff that they must see. I, I mean, I remember doing this story and this was hilarious. This was about a man who, you know, because you know how people are always smuggling animals illegally, internationally. This was about a man who had lined his pants, his pants with birds and he had formed little pockets in, in the, the pants. The best way to describe it is think of having, um, oh, those advent calendars that you have at Christmas and they have multiple pockets and you stuff them. So think of pants lined like that, each little pocket filled with a bird. And because it was dark, (laughs) birds will be quiet, I guess.
2: Oh, my gosh. Dark.
1: (laughs) He flew with all these birds lining his pants. No, I know that they're always finding, you know, everything, all sorts of snakes and all sorts of crazy things. But always I have, that has been one of my favorite, the bird man who lined his pants.
2: <laughs> Birds, Amazing. Yeah,
1: the crazy stuff that you, you know, are exposed to as a reporter in this world. Danny, thank you for joining us. It's always a pleasure. Thanks, we- Anna. We talked about the Dickie Floyd series, but the book that you have there behind you, Nothing Left to Prove, that's your personal story. And uh, where can people find out more about you and more about your books?
2: So I have uh, my website is murdermemo.com and uh, all of my books are on there and there's there's links to buy them. There's uh, you know descriptions of, of each of them and, and things of that nature. Uh, all of my books are on Amazon. You can find them there. You can order direct through me. Uh, in fact, I, I'm doing signed copies for Christmas. if People get their orders in soon enough. And um, that's it. And they do make great gifts.
1: I love that. Signed copies for Christmas. Yeah. That's fantastic, Danny. Excellent. Well, um, it's just so exciting that you've had this marvelous second career after being a, a homicide detective. It's just It's just amazing. And for those of you, so many of you know this, but for those of you who don't, um, and this may encourage you to learn more about Danny. Danny started writing to deal with his PTSD. It was part of his therapy. And out of that blossom, this amazing talent and second career. So um, it's amazing how healing and growing can find you a new purpose in life.
2: Yeah. Thanks, Dan. I appreciate that. Yeah.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. You can always find me at Anna G News, Anna with one N. So that's our program for this week. You can find all our episodes wherever you get your podcasts. Subscribe to our YouTube channel and sign up for our newsletter at truecrimedaily.com. Until next week, I'm your host, Anna Garcia. And as we always say, don't do crime.